Ask for a favor. Uh huh. Can I hear you say, come on? Kawaii. Come on. Kawaii. Come on. Kawaii. No. Come on. Come on. Come on. Come on. Yeah. Listen, I love Drew Brown from Pittsburgh. Come on. But his friends are terrible. <laughs> <laughs> Not ramping down. We're just getting started. Nothing stops this train. Thank you. God bless. And come on. Episode five of the Come On Network podcast, and we are pleased to be joined by Travis Swaggerty, the 2018 first-round pick of the Pittsburgh Pirates. Uh, able to take some time out of his day to join us, Donnie Chedrick, along with Jack Hilgrove and Kyle Dawson. Uh, Travis, just want to get started. How has life for you been since COVID has pretty much shut everything down and now reopening a little bit? Uh, it's definitely been strange, you know, being a month in a spring training and then having to come home and, and shut down or really not even shut down physically. We were told to stay ready because at the very beginning when it happens, like it could be gone a couple of weeks. We don't really know. So this whole time I've been staying ready, not knowing um, what to get ready for. So that part's been weird, but I have enjoyed the extra family time, a little more downtime. So it's it's been good. And I've also been playing a lot of Call of Duty. Wouldn't get that much Call of Duty time during the season. So I'm liking that part too. But for the most part, um, life's really not that much different. I enjoyed kind of staying home a little bit. Um, now it's just get back in the gym, get in the cages, and just stay ready for whatever comes. Uh, yeah, Travis, thanks for taking the time uh, to join us. So let's. And, you know, we like to, you know, hear cool stories and, you know, not as much dwell on, you know, all the negative and stuff going on in, in the world right now with the coronavirus and things like that. But take us back to um, your draft night and what that was like for you getting the call from uh, the Pittsburgh Pirates and being selected. It's funny you said that. I actually didn't receive any phone call whatsoever because I was in the MLB Network studio. So, you know, most guys when they get drafted, obviously they get a phone call and they get to prepare for it. So when the name goes on the screen, they know what's happening. Everybody can get excited. Uh, for me, because I was on TV and in the studio, I had my phone in my pocket and I couldn't look at it. So basically all the phone calls are going through my agent. And then he was just kind of nodding, just like, yes, no, what's going to happen? Um, so that was cool. It was, it was definitely different. It was more of a surprise. So I think I got some more raw emotion um, in the moment. And uh, it's definitely it was definitely crazy just because I've been working so hard my entire life for that. And then to kind of sit back and realize the real work hasn't even started yet. I kind of had to get back out of my or into my bubble. And be like, all right, just keep your head on straight. And let's go. So, um, that was, I mean, it was cool. Definitely get to see the studio. It felt like I'd been there before because I watched MLB Network all the time. So that was kind of strange. I walked in and it, and it felt familiar. Um, and it was cool meeting the guys over there, too. Uh, but it was it was definitely the top experience I've ever had in my life. So it was – I will never forget it. I was going to say it had to have been almost like the culmination of, of a lifelong dream and, and 
uh, you talked about how hard you had worked in the years prior and pretty much your entire life, you know, getting ready for that moment. Uh, that moment happens, and then you get sent to, to Morgantown, West Virginia, play for the, the Black Bears. Uh, tell us about what that first kind of half season was yeah. like or so. And um, or I guess it was a full season with the short season team. But uh, talk about what that experience was like and maybe the major differences uh, that maybe you noticed between that kind of style of pro game and, and the college game. Uh, well, when I first – so right after I signed in Pittsburgh, I reported straight to Mahoning Valley in Ohio. and this this the hotel we stayed in like it was so old and run down I was like this is this is minor league life like here we go I can't believe we're doing this and uh it actually that would end up being like the worst hotel we ever stayed in but uh Morgantown was cool it was great it was I mean obviously it's a really big college town and I've never actually spent a lot of time in the mountains like that so it was definitely not really a culture shock but just like it just felt different felt weird I didn't feel like I belonged it's definitely strange but um that whole Morgantown experience was was awesome. I had a great host family. Um, the travel was tough, but I, I've never really done travel that much on a bus. So I had to, you know, download some some cool apps to and games just to pass the time because I, I can't sleep on a bus. That, that's the only downside. Uh, but that summer was fun. I, I got to experience a lot of uh, a lot of ups, a lot of downs, and kind of, I mean, in college I didn't really struggle that much. I mean, compared to pro ball, so um, getting a play with the wood bat um, every day was was obviously really fun for me I love swinging wood bat so um, that part was great and uh, it was actually crazy how fast I gelled with the new guys because so I thought it would be just because you know in college everybody's from the same area so your interests are pretty much the same and for me to go in there and and meet dudes from everywhere and connect with them so quickly was was definitely cool and then after the All-Star game, the All-Star game was, was cool, obviously. I got to play with, with Michael Gretler and Cam Aldred from the Black Bears, so we got to go experience that together. And then I went to the Power and for three weeks, and I hit like 120, just, just something ridiculously bad. And I was just like, what are we – like, what's going on here? I've never struggled like this. It was really, it was really tough, but for me to experience that in my first summer, I think shaped my first full season, and I was able to handle failure a little bit better. Travis, going back to the, the draft in June of 2018, you were drafted right behind a pretty notable name, um, the guy that went on to become the 2019 NFL Rookie of the Year, uh, Kyler Murray. Is that sort of a, a cool feeling for you to know that you're the guy that got picked right after him in the MLB draft? Does that give you any motivation, anything like that? Uh, it was actually kind of cool because I, I thought I was going to Oakland. For sure. I thought I was going to get picked right there. And I knew the Pirates had a lot of interest, but the, the Athletics had a lot of interest too. And I actually talked to the A's more than I did the Pirates. So I was like, uh, here we go. And then I heard Kyler's name, and I was like, really? I was like, sweet. That's crazy. I was like, I don't even know if he's going to play. I can't believe that. So it was uh, it was definitely funny. I, I, in the moment, it was funny. But uh, obviously, he made the right choice for himself, and I'm, I'm pretty happy for him. But it is cool. It is cool thinking that I could have been in Kyler Murray's shoes for a month or two before he went to football. So it's definitely cool. Travis, do you think if Kyler Murray would have stuck with baseball, he would have had an equal amount of success? That's <sighs> uh, hard to say. I don't know. I mean, obviously, he's a, he was a gifted baseball player. He was good enough to go in the top ten picks. So 
I mean, he's just a freak athlete, but yeah, it's hard to say. I, I don't think so, just because um, in football, I mean, he went first overall, and he's – I mean, you see the ball he throws. It's ridiculous. So, uh, he can – he's going to be like a Lamar Jackson type. Maybe not as good as Lamar, but like the same game style, and it's it's hard to defend. So, I think he – his success in football it would be hard to, to match in baseball. Baseball is just substantially – maybe not substantially harder, but you fail a lot more in baseball. So – um, I think mentally, going forward for him, I think football would, would be the right choice. Uh, I'm glad you brought up the mental side a little bit. I wanted to ask you about that. You brought up earlier kind of the, the West Virginia power struggles a little bit uh, and the ups and downs that, that was the first season in, in pro ball. Was was that a lot of, of trying to get inside and, and out of your own head to a degree and, and trying to learn how to adapt to those struggles and, and ups and downs during – a course of a, a pro season where you're playing every night? It's definitely easier to handle because you play so much. Um, you know, in college, it's, it's magnified because you play way less games. So your numbers, when you, if you have a bad weekend, your numbers go way down. And then you got to try to pick them way back up. And it's it's hard to do. It's I think it's harder mentally that way. I think pro ball, playing every day, you, you look less and less at the scoreboard because you know you play so much. So it's like, ah. It's just one day at a time. If I went over four today, I can go three, four tomorrow, and do whatever. It's good. I mean, not much is going to change anyway. So, um, it's definitely, it's definitely, it was definitely different for me going through a struggle like that. And I, my first half with the Marauders this year wasn't that great either. But I think my spirits were a lot higher just because I knew we played so much again, and I was like, I'm going to figure it out at some point. So, um, getting that many reps is, uh, I think, to our advantage when it comes to getting out of a funk. But if it if that funk lasts a little while, it's 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 hard to get out of because you play you play so much, that's that's the other the other down that's the only downside of playing so much. If you're struggling for so long, you feel like you can never get out of it and you don't even want to get up and go to the field some days. So um the sooner you can get out of it the better. And I think uh you can get getting the opportunity to play every day makes it a little bit easier. Travis, who are some of the guys uh, I know in 2018 with the Black Bears, at least you and Daniel Amaral were two guys I noticed became pretty close, two speedy outfielders. Uh, along with him, who are some other guys that in these first years? Well, Danny's obviously number one. He's been my roommate the last two years. So uh, I'm Danny's my best friend in the Pirates organization. But uh, I've grown close to, to Cal Mitchell. Another outfielder he played with. I played with him last year, obviously. And um, really, I mean, Chris Sharp and Blad Madrid, all outfielders, really my best friends in here. But I, I'm pretty close to everybody. I, I'm, I feel like I'm a pretty personable guy. So I make friends with anybody. But um, from that team, um, Glenn Denning, Robbie Glenn Denning, pretty close with him. Um, Kinneman, uh, we were really close that summer. Um, I'm sure I can name more, but it's, it's, uh, I'm a little drawn a little blank, but. I would say from that team, Danny and Robbie were my two closest. We're joined by Travis Swaggerty, a 2018 first-round pick of the Pittsburgh Pirates. Travis, I was always kind of curious and about um, the difference, obviously, you know, playing w with a metal bat and then shifting to the pro level and swinging a wooden bat. Is there, you know, a lot of difference between the two, or is it just – I know you said you like swinging a wooden bat, or is it more just personal preference? Um, 
wood is more difficult just because you have less margin of error. Like with a metal bat, you can get jammed. And because it's, I mean, because it's metal, it's not going to break. So you have more chance of, of hitting a little bit harder. Like if you, you break a wood bat, you're probably not going to hit it very good. Now you can, there's hits in there. Don't get me wrong. There's broken bat hits in there, but you have, you have less barrel. I mean, you have to be, you have to be more accurate, more direct with a wood bat. Um, but for me, when I, in, even in college, like when I trained in, uh, in the fall and every time I went to hit in the cage, I used wood just strictly. I like to sound better. That's, that's the whole reason I use it. I just like to sound better. It's a little bit heavier. So it made that metal bat feel a little bit whippier when I picked it up, but I think it's, I think it's personal preference at the end of the day. How big of a numbers guy are you? You're a guy that looks at, at stats and, and I don't even know if you go back at the end of the year and you see X number or Y number, or you're a guy that looks at that stuff, or is it more just trying to fine tune things as things go along and you have kind of a mental measure of, of how well things are going? Um, you know, obviously like it's hard not to look at the numbers, but I try not to just because um, there's still work to be done no matter how good you do, how bad you do. So I'm constantly trying to make adjustments constantly trying to get better so sometimes the numbers don't show how good or how bad you're feeling yeah I think it's just a just a small thing because there's so many nowadays there's so many different numbers and calculations that can tell you if you're even there's there's even a number that can tell you how lucky you are pretty much it's like you're 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 batting average of balls in play I mean if you have a low one of those it's like you're just really unlucky so I mean it's hard to, it's it's hard to really say they even batting average doesn't really isn't doesn't tell the whole story. So that's why I try not to look at them. Uh, I just try to go off how my body's feeling and um, just how the ball goes. When I'm in the cage and just try to get the best results that way. Uh, about a month or so ago, Travis uh, read the, the article um, that was spotlighting your, your mother's work during this this whole pandemic. Talk a little bit about that, the sacrifices that that she has made. Um, performing on the front lines as a nurse yeah she's a rock star I mean for her to go in there and really she so she moved back to Louisiana like right when the coronavirus started happening so for her to get a job at the hospital and have to go straight into that after not working in the hospital for a little while it's, it's definitely tough um and then she has to go in there and every time she she went from room to room she had a I mean, she looked like a beekeeper soup like it was just like mat like a big mask like helmet thing and like just gowns she had to wear and then she had to take it off and then put another clean one on, like, well, like scrub up every time she went room to room. And you're talking about, I mean, nurses work 12-hour shifts. So imagine how many times they go to rooms. Like, that's, it's not easy to do. And then on top of that, obviously, you got the coronavirus in the hospital. And she's working with coronavirus patients. So it's like she's putting herself at risk every day. Like, and she's got to bring that home. You know, like, and that's, you don't want her to get sick. I mean, and then she can't go back to the hospital and help people. It's just a, just a crazy risk for her to take and uh, for her to be as strong as she's, she's been and for her to take care of her patients like she does. Um, it's just incredible to watch. And I know she leans on her faith a lot um, when it comes to that. And she, you know, she prays with her patients and all that. And you, you, you can't ask for more than that. So she's been 100% a rock star. Yeah. Tremendous amount of respect for her and all the frontline workers during this pandemic, but Travis, um, Back to baseball a little bit. Do you have a particular moment throughout maybe your career as, as a professional or even before, um, you know, in college or in high school that, that really sticks out to you as one of your greatest baseball accomplishments or greatest baseball memories? Um, uh, probably my sophomore year in college. 
we won the conference tournament. We won it at Georgia Southern against Georgia Southern. So we got to beat them in front of their, all their home fans to go to regional. So, like, that was an amazing feeling. And plus, it had been a while since South Alabama had won a conference tournament. So to, to finally, I've never dogpiled before. So that was the first time and only time I've ever dogpiled. So uh, that, that one sticks out. And I got to watch one of my best friends hit a walk-off while I was on deck. So I was a little jealous it wasn't me, but I was super happy for him. So uh, that, that, was, that was definitely my, my most fond baseball memory. Uh, Travis, I want to go a little bit broad with you now that you've been in uh, the Pirates system and obviously just in, in minor league baseball in general the last couple of years. Uh, there's been talks, and I'm, I'm sure you guys are aware of them as players and, and every personnel around these teams, of minor league baseball teams getting cut going forward, going down to like 120 teams. Uh, what does my, I'll put it this way. What does minor league baseball mean to, to these communities and into you guys beyond maybe even just development of, of prospects and, and guys that are going up through the ranks? Yeah, well, I'm glad you said that. There's what people don't understand is these teams are independently owned. So yeah, they're, let's say, I don't know what team from the pirates will get cut, but that team, isn't owned by the Pirates necessarily. So, like, the Pirates don't make any money off of that team, that community, and that team makes the money. So whatever money they get from concessions and all that, they put back into the team, into the community. So – and then you're, you're thinking about a lot of small towns that are minor league towns. Um, that's their livelihood in the summer. I mean, that's what they go do for fun. Like, they go watch these games, and they can't watch any games anymore. Like, what, what are you supposed to do? I mean, they've been doing this for X amount of years, like telling somebody to change their routine up. It's not – it doesn't go that well. So um, I think these communities – I feel bad for them because they're going to lose money and they're going to lose um, a fun thing to do. And also for the minor leaguers, I mean, you're how many guys have to get cut now because you're cutting teams? You know, like, and that's, that sucks. I don't want to watch somebody's career end over a budget cut almost, you know. It just, it just sucks. But um, I think at the end of the day, it's going to work out. Um, but I, I don't know. It just it just ends up kind of making these owners cheap because they want to pay less money to players. But it is what it is. I mean, I can't control it. I'm just going to stick to what I can do and and um, and make it to the big leagues. That's all I can really do. I don't know if you're allowed to say if you do know, but do you have any idea what the plan is, at least for uh, minor league teams, if the Players Association and the owners do come to an agreement and maybe start uh, roughly a month from now? Well, um, I know about as much as you do. So I'm pretty much just sitting here waiting. Um, I mean, I think we can't really do anything until the big leagues decides what they're going to do. Because, I mean, logistically, they're not going to want everyone in the organization at Pirate City at once with the coronavirus going on. So my guess would be whenever they come to an agreement, uh, the big league players and then the maybe some AAA guys that are – because I'm sure the rosters will be expanded. Um, they'll go down to Pirate City for a couple weeks, get their bodies ready, pitchers get their arms ready enough just to be able to throw in games. And then once they leave and go play whatever they're going to do um, – then the minor, the rest of my minor leaguers we either report probably all at once or in waves. Maybe we won't stay at Pirate City. Maybe they'll pay for um, housing off Pirate City. But my guess would be all of us just go to Pirate City and just work out. Maybe do like an instruction league type deal, 
just to get some at bats and get your body right. I mean, a lot of people probably still don't have gym access. Maybe they don't have cage access. So you have to get their bodies ready for off season training, because if you don't, if your body's already for off season training, it's going to, it's going to suck. So I think what's going to happen, we're going to do that. We're going to do that, go down there, get back in the weight room, um, get some strength back and then start the off season. I mean, we'll probably go down for a couple months or if we can't do everyone at Pirate City at once because too many people with too close to quarters, maybe you could see us report to our affiliates and just kind of scrimmage and, and practice there or maybe even get to play. But I don't see us playing any meaningful games, but um, it, it would be nice. It would definitely be nice. Travis, back to a couple of months ago when, you know, a heck of a lot of more businesses and things like that were shut down, um, you know, gym access and things like that. Is there anything – uh, maybe from the organization standpoint that they instructed you to do, or maybe that you picked up uh, creative ways to stay uh, in somewhat of uh, ready shape whenever um, it was time to play baseball again. Yeah. Our, uh, our strength staff does an incredible job with us. So we would get weekly texts from one of the strength coaches and uh, mine in particular was Mark Dixon. And um, he texted me and was asking how I'm doing. What's my, um, access like do I have access to a gym have I traveled any just to make sure I'm healthy and I'm good and then okay you don't have gym access we'll create a program for you like what have you been using a lift have you, have you been doing anything have you been doing just body weight bands and then you tell them what you have access to and then they've created a plan for each individual player based on what they have so they've done an incredible job it takes a lot of, of man hours to do and to create plans for us so um, we're doing the best we can I wanted to see if I don't know how much you're willing or can say about everything that's going on at the big league level right now. I mean, everyone at this point has an opinion on what's going on. Have you been one of those guys that have been more uh, just kind of trust the process, everything will work itself out, or, or do you have an opinion one way or the other? Um, I mean, everybody, like you said, everybody has their opinion. Um, you know, it's not really me for, for me to worry about just because I'm not in the big leagues, but um, I think the most fair thing to do would be however many games they play, whatever percentage of 162 that is, that's what percentage you give of their pay. I mean, I, I think you're seeing players that don't, go, don't get me wrong. Like these players have, have worked their tail off. They earn their contracts. So they want their money. And I understand that. I mean, I would want my money too, if I was in that situation, just because I've put this many years into to earning that contract. Like you want to get the money that you earned, which is, I mean, I get it. But you also – it's hard for me to sit here and say these guys are wanting, like, the prorated salaries. Like, they want 80% of their money. So, okay, but if you play 60 games, what is that, like 40%? Something like that. So you want 80% of your money for 40% of the work. That doesn't really add up. So I think you're going to – I mean, that's why these owners are having problems. Like, why don't you just take the simple solution, in my opinion. I'm sure it's not that simple. But like, if you play 81 games – that's 50% of the games, you get 50% of your money. That would make sense to me. But they were trying to offer these guys that were making $35 million. Oh, this year you're going to make $7 million. So that's like 20% of their pay. But the guys that are making the big league minimum, 550 k you're going to get 80% of your money because it's less money. And these players are like, wait a minute, why does he make 80% of his money, but I make 20% of mine? That's where all the, 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 uh, the chaos has been. But my opinion would be just give them a number of games to play and pay him that percentage of whatever whatever percentage that number of games is of 162. 
Travis, did you watch Long Gone Summer, the uh, 30 for 30 on Sammy Sosa and Mark McGuire? And if so, what were your thoughts on it? I actually did not watch it. I have not seen it. I do have a Sammy Sosa jersey behind me. I, I, I noticed that. Do you, do you plan on, on watching it? Have you heard yeah. any, any reviews about it? Yeah, I definitely plan on watching it. I haven't, I haven't watched it. I know it's a, it's a home run race thing, right? I haven't seen it, but it's definitely going to be a good watch. So I have to check it out. I haven't been watching that much TV, believe it or not. Uh, Travis, I'm curious. You know, growing up in Louisiana um, and then shifting over to Alabama to play your college ball, who were some of, like, the, maybe the college football teams or team you grew uh, up rooting for? And then when you shifted over, and I know it was South Alabama, but did you get a taste of that uh, Auburn-Alabama rivalry and what that might have been like? Yeah, so I, I grew up – I went to high school 20 minutes from LSU, so I'm – I've been an LSU fan my entire life. But, yeah, it literally – I mean, no one's a South Alabama football fan. It just doesn't make – like, you'll go to the games, but really you're going to root for Auburn, you're going to root for Alabama when you're over there. So, a lot of the times players would, like, on our off weekends, some would go to Alabama, some would go to Auburn and tailgate and stuff. Um, so there were some Mississippi State fans. But for the most part, everyone that's from there was either Auburn or Alabama. And every weekend, every time I wanted to watch an LSU game, I couldn't do it because Alabama was on my TV. And I was getting a little upset, so I had to go on my phone and just, just like, live stream it to my phone and watch both games at the same time. So uh, I didn't get the, the good LSU call, but it's okay. It's okay. LSU just won a national championship, so I'm all good. You're a Saints fan, correct? I am a Saints fan. Okay, so when you get to Pittsburgh, you know that might be a little bit of an issue with some people. I'm not saying us, but it might be a little bit of an issue with some people when you get up that, there. That's okay. Listen, I'll, I'll, be a, <laughs> I'll be a closet Steelers fan. That's fine. I can I respect that. I don't hate the Steelers. I mean, I like the Steelers. I just like the Saints a lot better. That's, <laughs> that's fine. That's fine with me. Like that's under, I feel like that's understandable. I mean, hey, man, you're from Louisiana. Like, shouldn't you be a Saints fan? Yes. Yes, I am. Yeah, but well, it would certainly be better than you being from this area and saying you're a Patriots fan, like a lot of people up here seem to, to have the idea of. Those people won't be Patriots fans much longer. <laughs> <laughs> Jared Stidham's not going to bring him as many Super Bowls I'll say no. that no he won't well, let me let me jump to something else too I I, I noticed on, on your Twitter feed you're not a, a huge Twitter guy you don't tweet a lot but you tweet a lot about Griffey your dog that's uh, right I and, and Peyton obviously is up there in, in the points of things on Twitter too but uh talk about just what what the experience of going through the minor league system and, and eventually hopefully your big league debut will be like uh to share with with those two and and your family included um I mean, we're about to get married in December, so we've been together for a long time, and I'm, I'm super excited for that. But it's nice to have my partner in crime with me through all that because it's not easy. Like, struggles I had to go through mentally with not playing well, it's hard to, t it's hard to deal with by yourself. So to have someone to fall back on, even when I'm a little bit mean to her, like, I know she gets it, and I know she gets mad at me for being a little mean to her, but she gets it. She just, she just takes it on the chin, and, uh, and then she gives it back to me a little bit. She humbles me. She keeps me, uh, she keeps me grounded, so – um she's definitely special um she's got a place in my heart obviously strictly for her and then I get to see her be a dog mom and she she, I, she loves that dog more than she loves me I swear she does but uh it's it's definitely fun getting to ride in the truck with them too every day um those are my best friends so um I enjoy life with them and looking forward to many years in the future Travis Swaggerty, first-round pick of the Pittsburgh Pirates in 2018. Travis, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. 
Yeah, I appreciate you having me. Come on, Network. This is uh, it's on the come up for sure. <laughs> well, uh, we'll, we'll have to send you a shirt uh, whenever, we, whenever we get those going. I wear an XL t-shirt. Send them on over. All right, will do. Will do. And uh, con- early congratulations to you and Peyton. All right. Thanks, Donnie. I appreciate it. Another thank you to Travis Swaggerty, the 20th pick of the Pittsburgh Pirates. And with that, we'll into the MLB again. Still trying to work things out, guys. Uh, you know, Rob Manfred, unfortunately, turning baseball into the biggest laughing stock possibly of all time. Uh, you know, these guys going back and forth throughout the entire week. Maybe by the time this podcast gets posted later this weekend. Uh, we'll have a deal, but uh, Kyle Dawson, I'll just throw it to you uh, to start us off. Yeah, I, I don't know that we will have a deal by the time uh, this podcast episode gets posted. It's been quite the uh, adventure, the roller coaster, whatever term you want to use to describe these negotiations. We went from during the MLB draft last week, Rob Manfred officially kind of guaranteeing a season would happen. He said 100% it's going to happen, and then Fast forward a few days later into early this week, and you've got Rob Manfred on ESPN saying that he's not confident the season will happen. So since then, Tony Clark, who's the MLBPA representative or the head of the MLBPA, and and Rob Manfred have sat down. They thought they had a framework of a deal. Uh, The MLB ended up proposing a 60-game schedule with full prorated pay, which I think uh, was pretty reasonable. Uh, Expanded playoffs, DH, Everything else, the kit and caboodle that was a part of that proposal was pretty solid. Uh, And the players basically came back and said, and I I would agree with this to a point, that we can probably fit more games in before even the drop-dead date of September 27th that the owners in the league have been talking about because of the fear of a second wave of this virus and uh, wanting to make sure that the playoffs can still happen, expanded or not, because of the money that would come in from TV deals there. Um, obviously there's still a big concern. There was a report as we're recording this on Friday that there's been eight people at Philly's camp that have tested positive for the virus. So there's always going to be that, you know, the whole, the whole virus in the mold, uh, discussion to be had, but obviously these negotiations being over money are really turning people off from the game. Uh, they're turning off, you know, the people who baseball needs to keep, to keep things going at a, at a normal rate that they do, or the, the the fans that have been around their entire lives, people like me or people like you guys or people like uh, Joe, whoever, you know, that, that they're more than the average fan. And they even need to keep the average fan in and what this has done. And uh, a lot of the reporters have started to tweet about this, what this uh, dialogue and this, this kind of drop dead uh, patheticness that has happened in the last couple of weeks to a month, month and a half uh, has really turned people off to the game. And I don't think that Rob Manfred, we talked about this with Alex Stump a few weeks ago on the podcast. I don't think he's a great commissioner for the game. I don't think he's a great commissioner for the fans, for the players, but I think he's a pretty darn good one when it comes to the owners. He's a guy that was in the negotiations as part of the labor disputes in the 90s, a guy that's been wholly on their side, invested in making uh, the maximi- uh, the maximization or, or maximizing the owner's profits, something that he hasn't done a great job of, in my opinion, but horrible for the game, doesn't care about the future of it. We talked about that with Alex a couple weeks ago, too, and um, cutting MILB teams, 
uh, not caring about the game itself, not being able to, to put people in place to help market the game and market the players. Uh, really kind of just a disaster for baseball. And we've talked about this several times, Jack and, and Donnie. Uh, MLB had a chance here to be the first ones back, and they really, really screwed this one up. Yeah, I agree. I mean, who – I don't know about you guys. I, I don't. I didn't think that – you know, I, I'm not sure it's more of a COVID – problem in baseball it's it you know it screams work lockout and things like that I would have never thought that this as you said they had a very legitimate chance to come back and be the first sport back and um you know b- be that beacon of hope almost for sports fans that have been lacking you know content for the better part of the last four months um Rob Manfred is not a baseball guy. He, I mean, he's, I, I mean, he was brought on in, I believe, 87 to work with collective bargaining, and he, he played a key role in settling everything in 94 uh, and with the strike. Um, and, and that's kind of what made his legacy in baseball, if you're naming baseball, and kind of threw his hat in the ring. And then he worked his way up through the ranks and became the commissioner in 2015. But I mean, it, it. I don't think he is a baseball guy. I, you know, you, you look at the other commissioners of the sports, um, Roger Goodell, Gary Bettman, Adam Silver. Those are guys that have been around their respective sports basically their whole life. Rob Manfred, he's a lawyer. He's a guy that focuses on the law aspect of things. And it, I find it incredibly ironic that with his expertise in, you know, being a key part in working with lockouts and in the 94, 95 strike, and he can't figure it out here. I mean, how shady is it that the guy said, we're going to play. And then a week later, he's not confident that they will play. What, where did that come from? What changed and what made you say not too long ago that you're going to, that the season's going to go on. I found it very, very shady. And I found it, disrespectful to diehard baseball fans uh it, it, it it's not something that you know I really would have ever thought we'd seen in major league baseball and it's unfortunate that it's come to that because people are saying now too that this could carry over into next season you know virus aside this could potentially cause a lockout in 2021 baseball very quickly is going to become fourth out of the four major sports in America and I'm not sure uh, it's close. There's going to be a huge gap depending on how they handle this between baseball and that third popular sport. Yeah, I think the the scary thing is that baseball was slowly declining before this, at least to a lot of casual fans, and this will be a very big hurt on the game. I, I saw a tweet uh, earlier this week. I think it was uh, Andrew Phil Evan, the fan, um, talking about the Pirates' attendance in 1994 before the strike. Uh, it was just over 20,000 people per game in the attendance in 1995 after the strike. And once the, the games came back, it was in, in the middle realm of 12,000. So that, that's a pretty ugly look at what we could see in the future. Because you just have to imagine with the way the Pirates are now and the way Pirates fans are now, what that will look like. The fans have very little faith in Major League Baseball, and I really don't blame them, especially if you're a casual fan. And Pirates fans have no faith or no interest in the Pirates anyway due to the, the acts of their upper management for the, the, the last few years, you know, after having a team that won nearly 100 games just five years ago. 
Um, it, it's been a pathetic job. Uh, I know it's mainly on the owners. You know, a lot of the blame is on the owners. Uh, you know, the players will obviously get some blame because you have to realize that the average fan won't look at it maybe the way that the three of us um, or, you know, Joe, the, the other one involved in this, will look at it. They see it as millionaires versus billionaires while they sit at home unemployed trying to support themselves and their families. And I don't really think that'll sit well with the casual fan of baseball. No, it won't. And we can all agree, and hopefully, and this is my perception of it, Pittsburgh, as we localize it, Pittsburgh is not a baseball town. It's not. It is always and forever a football town. The Steelers ran the 1970s and had some success, uh, you know, bad parts of the 80s, whatever, and then in the 90s and then in today. Pittsburgh's a football town. Were the Pirates good in the 70s? Sure. Were they good in the 90s? Yes. Was there a lot of hype? PNC Park was one hell of a place to be in the mid-2010s uh, mid when they were winning all those games. But Pittsburgh's not a baseball town. The attendance for the Pittsburgh Pirates, and while it has a lot to do with performance, also has a lot to do with baseball just not being the top sport. I'd probably even put hockey before I'd put baseball in Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh fans know that, and they don't care about baseball because of how pathetic the Pirates have been. All right, And they look at it from a Pirates perspective. Now, Pittsburgh sports fans are looking at it from uh, an entire baseball perspective. And seeing how pathetic it's run at the top of Major League Baseball. So you combine that and the perspective on just the local aspect of the Pirates. It's going to get worse before it gets better as far as attendance and people giving a crap about the Pirates in Pittsburgh. Uh, first of all, I think it was already uh, kind of getting a lot worse uh, in Pittsburgh. And I, to the point of it being a football town, I'll, I'll agree with that. But. Uh, with a caveat that obviously football isn't being played in the better part of the Major League Baseball season and when the Pirates were good from 13 to 15 or even from 11 to 15 if you want to walk it back a couple of years despite all of the uh, collapses that happened in 11 and 12 uh, and even going back to the 70s and the 90s I think this can be a baseball town it has the opportunity to be a baseball town but it obviously requires performance it requires a fan base that backs the ownership, a fan base that backs the organization. Right now, the Pirates don't have that. I think they did a good job, and uh, we didn't have the podcast around when they made the hires of Ben Charrington, and Travis Williams is, is the president, uh, and, and all the other hires. Derek Shelton is the manager that I thought were pretty darn good hires by the organization, and it's unfortunate that we're not going to be able to see that played out this year from a full season standpoint, but uh, I thought they drafted really well, which I know we'll talk about here in a couple of minutes, but I, I will say I don't think that this negotiation is going to turn off more Pirates fans than would have already been turned off by the organization and not gone back to games. The attendance was already going to be brutal, um, and I don't think this changes much. I do think it changes much to the point of the casual baseball fan you both have made in, in the last few minutes here. It's here. Fan or the new fan has no room to want to be a part of the game right now, and, and they're turned off by everything uh, that is going on here. Here, here, they frankly, should be. I don't think there's any reason why uh, people should want to get invested into baseball right now, given the situation that's going on between the owners and the players. Uh, it's it's a big turnoff for me as a, as a diehard baseball fan. 
uh, I'm not going anywhere, but they don't have to worry about a guy like me. They need to worry about uh, new fans and casual fans and keeping them around. And frankly, they haven't done a good enough job of, of being able to do that. And Kyle, we'll go right back to you. You mentioned the, the Pirates draft, you know, the MLB draft taking place in the middle of last week. So I want to spend a few minutes on that. Uh, the Pirates picking up a stud middle infielder um, with their first pick and then selecting a lot of pitchers, a lot of right-handed pitchers. So what do you make of uh, the selections the Pirates had plus the fact that it was only a five-round draft, which is much, much different than what the MLB is used to? Yeah, it is. Uh, 40 rounds in the first place, it usually be. And I, I always thought that 40 rounds was probably too many. Uh, I think the better ballpark would be 20 or 25. I think once you get beyond that point in the past, there's been a lot of, uh, and I don't really have any data to back this up, but a lot of the late round picks have been just high school kids that really the teams don't have a chance to sign. Uh, there's not really not really worth signing at that point instead of going to college if you've got a good opportunity. Uh, and a lot of them have been favors too from from scouts or whoever, local kids, uh, you know, whatever the reason may be. A lot of them have been favors in the late rounds. But I, I thought five was probably too few. This year, I probably would have wanted it to be around 10 just because, and again, speaking just to the Pirates' perspective, this is a new front office, right? This is a new scouting department that's in the mix, and they only got to make six picks. They had the competitive balance pick in, at the late round one at 31, uh, where they got Carmen Majinski, who's uh, I think going to be a pretty good right-handed pitcher, but uh, a bunch of right-handed pitchers, and I think that that's the strategy if I was the Pirates that I would have taken in this draft. Uh, they selected... At seven, Donnie mentioned the stud middle infielder Nick Gonzalez was awesome in the last couple of years at New Mexico State. All you have to do is go to his baseball reference page and, and check out the numbers. 16 games this year before the pandemic shortened the season. 448 uh, batting average with a, a 1.155 OPS in 16 games. 12 home runs and 26 of his hits. 58 at-bats, three more doubles, 36 RBI. It's, it was a video game-like shortened season for him. And he had a really good year in 2019 as well, 1,304 OPS, 16 homers, uh, 80 RBIs, something like that, 19 doubles in 55 games. He walks more than EKs. Uh, his K rate is very good. It's only around once every eight uh, plate appearances. And, and he was really good in a Woodbat Cape Cod Summer League uh, last year as well, proving that he can – do it against elite pitching, uh, which maybe he didn't see so much at New Mexico State. So I think that's a bat that is going to play big time at number seven with Nick Gonzalez. He probably projects as a second baseman, uh, maybe a corner outfielder, but I think the bat plays at a lot of different places. Uh, and then Donnie mentioned they went with uh, all the right-handed pitchers from there on out. Carmen Bajinski, a uh, big power-throwing right-hander that, that had a broken foot during 2019. He pitched pretty well in the Cape Cod League last year, too. Um, and, and was all right this year before the pandemic shortened the season. Uh, high school pitcher in the second round who has since signed Jared Jones has a lot of uh, elite velocity for a high school kid, and it looks kind of effortless when you watch a video of him. So that's a little bit raw. They'll be able to work with him. And then Nick Garcia, a D3 guy from Chapman University, there's obviously a lots of unknowns with that. But 9-0 uh, and is a sophomore in 30 appearances, 12 saves, 56 innings, 82 Ks, only walked 14 uh, 31 hits in those 56 innings as a junior this year. He was 4-1 and one, uh, with 27 innings under his belt before everything went down. And and then the two in the later rounds, Jack Hartman out of Appalachian State and Logan Hoffman from Northwestern, both guys that 
have some plus signs for being fourth and fifth round picks. I don't know that they're fourth and fifth round picks if it's not a five round draft, but um, those guys have some pluses too. I think they drafted really well, and like I said, I would have I would have gone heavy pitching. I don't know if I would have gone heavy all right-handed pitching, but it seems like the talent that they did get is, is pretty good, and uh, I was pretty satisfied as a fan and as a, a guy that covers the game. Um, I was pretty satisfied with the draft. I don't know what the hell they're doing. We got a kid growing up in our backyard over there in Imperial, and they didn't draft him. Yeah, that would be what our that would be what our friend in the Pittsburgh media, John Staggerwald, had to say about uh, Austin Hendrick. Listen, Austin Hendrick is a great bat, uh, big time power, big time exit velocity. I mean, there's a there's a good thing when you're being I mean, good thing and a bad thing in some senses when you're being compared to Mike Trout as part of the draft. Uh, broadcast and his exit velocity and his you know during workouts and stuff uh, Hendricks a great bat don't get me wrong I just Nick Gonzalez is is the more polished option in, in a five-round draft and what the situation where the Pirates are I think Nick Gonzalez is automatically in the top seven or eight prospects in the organization uh, just based off what he did in the last two years of college and uh, Hendricks a little bit more raw obviously you <laughs> a lot of people just want them to go local I just I just don't which I it. which I don't understand and you you're, you're not drafting local you're drafting no. to build your organization that's exactly. what I've never understood and the same thing goes for colleges around here that say like Pat all the Yinzers in Pittsburgh will say Pat Narduzzi just needs to get all the local WPIAL talent get those guys and we'll be able to win and it's like no <laughs> that's not how it works <laughs> I mean maybe you can make a case for that being true maybe 10 years ago but now you start seeing a majority of the WPIAL prospects going you know FCS to you know G5 division one school I mean they don't produce a whole lot of power five talent Maybe a couple guys a year, but that's not enough. Anyway, back to baseball. Any mock draft that you saw had Austin Hendrick going somewhere in that like 11 to 15 range. Um, that, that, that's pretty, I think, appropriate for his skill set. Um, you, 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 know, you hit your, your nail on the head there, Kyle, talking about him being raw. And he's a high school prospect. I mean, you know, those guys have a little more progressing to do. And unless that they are, you know, drop dead unanimously a guy like Mike Trout or Bryce Harper coming out when they were drafted, you're not going to take a guy like that maybe in the top 10. Um, the Pirates hit the nail on the head with Nick Gonzalez. I saw a couple of mock drafts that had him in the top five, and they got him at seven. Um, you, you take the best player available, and for them it was Nick Gonzalez and it wasn't Austin Hendrick. I wish Austin Hendrick the best. I think he's going to be... Uh, and has the potential to be a top-tier major league outfielder in his career. Hopefully for him that's the case. But, you know, the Pirates picked seventh, and I don't think Austin Hendrick was, I don't want to say he wasn't worth it, but there were a heck of a lot of prospects there. The guys that they took included in Gonzalez uh, that were made it more worthwhile. Yeah, no disrespect to Austin Hendrick and Donnie. I'll let you go here in a second, but no disrespect to him. But uh, he wouldn't even have been my next choice if I was the Pirates taking a hitter. I would have picked the kid Zach Veen that uh, ended up getting picked by Colorado. I would have absolutely taken him before Hendrick, just based off talent, based off what I've seen and what I've read. And uh, again, that's no disrespect to Austin Hendrick. I think he's a great player. I think he's absolutely worthy of the pick that he uh, got as Cincinnati at 12. And uh, all the best to him. I hope he does well. <laughs> if he proves us wrong and he ends up better than uh, Nick Gonzalez, and I guess that's a good thing for, for us here in Pittsburgh. 
Well, I, I, yeah, I can't wait until we, we hear forever where the kid came from because that <laughs> never gets beaten into the ground uh, anytime you're watching an MLB game, including the Pirates and then somebody from around Pittsburgh. Uh, but we'll we'll move over to uh, to basketball, something that Pittsburgh doesn't have. However, the NBA players taking a little bit of a step back, at least some of them. Uh, Kyrie Irving held a conference call with about 80 players or so and a handful of them believe that the season should not restart uh, strictly because it would be a distraction from the Black Lives Matter movement. Uh, but LeBron James, who was not in on the call, is against Kyrie Irving. He wants to make a push to finish the season. Um, I can assume what side Kyle's on. Not sure about Jack, but I'm 100% on LeBron's side here, um, as most sports fans should be. Um, you know, I, I know that myself or you know neither of you guys can really speak as if you're african-american but the avenue is open make statements while playing again you know we we saw that happen so many times throughout history uh you know the big nfl name that keeps getting brought up is colin kaepernick he has proven everybody wrong in a pretty big way you know blacklisted from the nfl for a few years for having the courage to stand up for what he believed in uh and now we're going to get to a point that several big-name NFL players will do the same thing that he did this upcoming season. So if LeBron James makes a statement on the court, either verbal or nonverbal, it will have a strong effect on the Black Lives Matter movement. You know, I don't really think it's a distraction. It's just another risk to the players, if anything, because the NBA uh, would have the power if – they don't come back to play. They have the power. They could terminate uh, some of the trigger a, a lockout in the near future. So I uh, want to get your guys' thoughts on this, uh, but I'm, I'm definitely on LeBron's side here. I think the NBA coming back, you know, th- those athletes can make statements whenever they play. You know, people will see them probably in an even stronger light than what they do now. Yeah, I would wholeheartedly agree with that. Uh, I think that the concerns about taking away from the protests and taking away from what's going on in the country right now, I don't want to say that they're not founded, uh, but I think that you are hit the nail on the head there, Donnie, exactly uh, by saying that I think there's a bigger light on them now. And, and we've already seen Adam Silver in the NBA has come out and said, we're going to focus on these social injustices and we're going to focus on taking steps towards doing the right thing and taking steps towards being a part of this and being a part of the change rather than standing back uh, in the backlight of things. I don't think that that is much of a valid concern. I think if anything, that the, the players should be concerned uh, with what's going on with the coronavirus pandemic down in Florida. I mean, they've seen cases spike the highest over the last week or two in the last two week average. And they've seen in the entire pandemic, you're going to put all these guys away from their families and essentially quarantine them for at least 35 to 40 days. If you're not uh, into the playoffs and first round of the playoffs and, and some of these guys are going to end up being there for two or three months. I think that would be the biggest concern if I'm an NBA player right now is, is the safety related stuff that has to do with this restart. I don't think that the other uh, reasons, uh, not that they're, again, not that they're not important. They are obviously very important. I just don't see, uh, I think they've got the bigger limelight. They've got the bigger spotlight to be able to deal with those issues at the same time as giving people 
and Jack said this made this uh, reference earlier as a beacon of hope to people who kind of need it right now. Uh, and I think the NBA starting up as soon as possible is, is probably great for the league. It's great for the players. They'll be making money off it. Uh, but there is risk involved with it. And I think you've got to weigh all of the things before you go back in. But I will say that starting a new league, Kyrie Irving, probably not very smart. Well, Kyrie Irving has always kind of been out there, right? I mean, he's uh, the, the whole the earth is flat kind of thing with him. Um, I, I, I don't know how many people take what he says uh, very seriously nowadays. But, yeah, I, I agree with you, Kyle. Starting in like, where, where, how are you going to get it to go? Where, like, do they know how to handle everything in that regard safety-wise and you know, how do you regulate starting a new league to compete with the NBA? Those, it was just a stupid comment. Um, and I, I think, you know, it's going to be very tough for the NBA to, um, again, in Florida, where you highlighted that cases are spiking and are, are higher than they've seen. Um, and it, it's going to be tough for the NBA. It's going to be tough for all sports uh, to play and play safely and follow guidelines um, you know, there now there's questions about the NFL season. Well, how's that going to play out? It's going to be very interesting. And, uh, I think, you know, the NBA, um, has a chance to do it right, but I also think they have a chance to, you know, mess up too. Um, and everybody does. And, you know, people are looking into these positive cases surfacing up, um, all uh, across all sports. I think the Tampa Bay lightning had a couple positive cases. Uh, the Phillies you mentioned earlier, um, and I think an unnamed PGA Tour golfer now has tested positive. Um, that's what happens, unfortunately, when you test people. Uh, there are going to be positive tests that come back. There are so many uh, thousands and thousands of people that are going to be involved in you know, the return of the NFL and the NBA. Law averages, if everybody's going to be tested on a regular basis, you are going to have positive cases. And it's just a matter of having a plan in place to... Um, figure out how to fix it and move on and well not fix it but handle it and move on um, and uh, I'm not sure you really get that with a, a league and with Kyrie Irving in charge of it or whoever uh, starting up kind of a rebellion I don't know if that kind of organization and things happen in a case like that yeah I don't really think there, there's much to this uh, I know Kyrie Irving is what the uh, the vice president of the Players Association or something like that but um, I don't, I don't really think a lot of players will get on board with this, uh, especially the idea to start up a new league. Um, because at this point, you know, not, not that I think the NBA is as powerful as the NFL, but any new basketball league, uh, it'll never be close to what the, the NBA has in terms of talent. So I think it'll really struggle, but I, I really don't buy that idea. Um, I would think that neither of you guys buy that idea, and I, I just think it's Kyrie Irving just kind of being himself. He's always had to have these odd, outspoken opinions. Um, you know, it's gotten him out of two teams, uh, having, you know, differing opinions that, than others in the league, which, I mean, it's not bad to have that, but in this case, I just don't really think there's much behind it. Plus, you also have to consider the fact that Kyrie Irving won't play when they come back anyway. So why would guys that are going to play be so on board with this? 
Yeah, I don't, I don't really see any reason to be on board with it. Uh, again, I, I think that the social injustice issue is obviously huge, obviously important. Uh, but Kyrie Irving, like you said, isn't even going to be playing. He's not even going to be down there. So I don't, I don't see a reason for him to be all upset about it. If, if, uh, if there is other or other players that are concerned, have safety concerns, or have concerns about the optics of playing with everything going on, then. I would I would think that it would be better for those guys to come forward. Not that Kyrie Irving doesn't have a say, and not that Kyrie Irving's opinion isn't important and should be held uh, to a standard that people pay attention to. I I just don't see uh, how this is necessarily a horrible thing for the league. All right, guys, let's jump to NASCAR now. A couple of things going on with NASCAR. Uh, they had an event in last week. A couple of fans were in the stands, and then going off that. Um, the the outgrowing support for Bubba Wallace, who is the only African American racer uh, on the the main the, the main NASCAR circuit, uh, first sport back with some real fans in the stands, and one of them being Alvin Kamara, who is one of the many athletes that have come out in support of Bubba Wallace. You know he came out to support him live at the race at Homestead, um, being one of the lucky fans in attendance. And we've seen several uh, black athletes that have stated how a few weeks ago they didn't even know there was a black driver in NASCAR. And now it's pretty cool to see that a lot of them are in full support. Yeah, and I I am under the impression that uh, Bubba Wallace, as far as um, you know, people with a larger voice voicing their opinion and their feelings on the subject of what's been going on in this country, I think he's been one of the bravest ones. I mean, I, I don't think it's really any secret when you look at NASCAR and you look at uh, the culture that it has, uh, it's, you know, People have different opinions on, you know, the, the the Black Lives Matter movement. I'm dancing around the subject. I'm sorry. NASCAR, for a better part of it, they, they are, I think, a lot more of a, a racist fan base than other sports. And for Bubba Wallace, uh, obviously an African-American driver, the only one in NASCAR, um, it, it's it, it could be really intimidating for a guy like Bubba Wallace, to be able to voice his opinion and stand up for what's right. And he did. And I'm really glad that more people like that, how you said, Donnie, don't really know that there is a black NASCAR driver, Bubba Wallace. Take notice of him. Alvin Kamara coming out to support him because he's been, you know, he came out publicly and said what he needed to say and uh, supported and you know wore his shirt that he, the way that he did. Um, I think it's awesome for Bubba Wallace to be able to do that and have the courage to be able to do that in a sport where, you know, more so than others, it's looked at a different light. Um, he deserves all the credit and he deserves um, just a, a, a tremendous amount of praise for how he did it and how brave he was for, for uh, to be able to do it. And uh, yeah, he should be recognized that way. And I'm glad other athletes like Alvin Kamara are coming out to support him and backing him because they should. 
Yeah, I think everything that you both have said about this has already been pretty accurate, what I would say. Uh, the car scheme that Bubba Wallace had drew a lot of ire from uh, what I think is the minority of the NASCAR fan base and, and kind of the culture that they've breeded and uh, the deep south uh, where a lot of the tracks are and, and the heritage and the history that they claim down there. I, I don't think that... Uh, it's right what they're giving ire to Bubba Wallace for the Black Lives Matter movement. That there's some people in this country that seem to think that that's divisive or that it's it's not good enough for them because it excludes them if they're white or if they're uh, Mexican, Hispanic, whatever you you know any other culture that you come from. The Black Lives Matter movement has nothing to do with white people's lives. They're not saying that uh, the average white person in America deserves to die to police brutality or doesn't deserve the same rights that everybody in the United States and everybody in the world deserves. Uh, it's more about the police brutality, the systemic racism that is still in this country, despite having slavery been abolished in the 1860s. Um, and segregation being all but gone, uh, for the most part at least, in, in, the, in the middle part of the 1900s. And it doesn't exclude white people. It's not divisive. It is just about getting black people, African Americans, the same treatment that everybody else gets. And I'm not sure that the and Confederate flag and arguing for the heritage and the history of a, of a part of the country that, that broke away from the United States, uh, a place that was built on the idea of being the land of the free and home of the brave, uh, had slavery as one of its biggest institutions and ideologies and uh, enslaving people that it goes against what every fiber of what this country was built on. I'm not sure that dying on the hill of the Confederate flag is one that a hill that we should be trying to die on. Um, and I think that that's, I mean, I, this isn't a great parallel, but it's one that I saw on social media this week uh, regarding all of the NASCAR stuff. If you've got a problem with the Confederate flag being banned from NASCAR events, what would you say to a, a Jewish person or to somebody of any Christianity religion uh, or any person in general if someone was going around flying the Nazi symbol at NASCAR events or at an event? It's the same kind of idea. It is, it is seen by most people as an image of hate, an image of enslavery, an image of, you know, something that in a time in this country that, frankly, we shouldn't be proud of, uh, the history or the heritage. And I think that this generation, our generation, the younger generation, has really started to spearhead that movement. I applaud what the younger people have done. I applaud what the every peaceful protester has done in this country. And uh, I just don't think that the Confederate flag being banned and being upset about that as a hill we should be dying on as a sports fan or in general. Yeah, and I feel like that there are a lot of people um, and a lot of you know NASCAR fans that if they do uh, have a defense for the Confederate flag, they don't even know what the Confederate flag means. Uh, exactly. Because, exactly. <laughs> because in the end, the Confederate flag is un-American. So it means you're yes. going against the the american flag and the american way and it makes zero sense to really fit you know i always chuckled as as a kid growing up you know i lived out in a more 
uh, rural area. You know, you would always see the, the guy driving down the road with the, the big Confederate flag on the back, and he'd have the big bumper sticker that said heritage, not hate. Th- those people don't have a clue what, what the heritage is. It is, and, an, they, it is anti-American. You call yourself, you cannot call yourself a patriot of America and fl- fly a Confederate flag. People broke away from our union in the 1800s to create a new nation and lost. So that symbol is not American. It is, it, it, I, I agree with you 100%. And, and, and those... Look at it from a perspective that's not racial. I mean, the Confederate flag, the one of the big reasons they stood for obviously is slavery, but it is, it, it is un-American more than anything else. And those are the same people that, you know, act like they're the biggest patriots and all the biggest patriotic holidays, you know, Memorial Day, 4th of July, so on and so forth. Uh, but I, I think NASCAR as an organization has done a, a pretty terrific job in turning everything around and positive. You know, we, we talked about how much support Bubba Wallace is getting, you know, a lot of backing from NASCAR uh, along with athletes that are outside of the sport but whenever you think back a few months ago whenever nascar was still doing the the i races you know and and kyle larson one of uh, you know a a somewhat prominent nascar driver says the n-word nascar did a fantastic job of firing him pretty much on the spot you know that that audio came out and he was he was done you know he was gone from nascar he was fired from his team and matt kenseth came back from retirement to replace him so they they did really well with that and now with the the bubba wallace support um i think nascar has really done a good job of turning around uh the stereotype that a lot of people had for it anyways guys we'll jump into our final topic of the day uh the story that Adam Rank, an NFL Network analyst, has the Steelers going 13-3 and next season along with sweeping the Baltimore Ravens. Uh, a little bit of a breakdown. Um, you know, he, he posted the, the, the schedule when he was on air. Uh, the Steelers will start 5-0, and so that's wins on the road at New York against the Giants in Week 1 at Tennessee in Week 4. Three home wins, Denver, Houston, and Philadelphia. First home loss doesn't come until week six, and that's the only home loss of the season. It comes against the Cleveland Browns. Then after a loss to Dallas on the road, four straight wins again, Cincinnati at Jacksonville, Baltimore on Thanksgiving night, and then Washington also at home. The final loss of the year comes at Buffalo on a Sunday night, then three wins to finish out the regular season at Cincinnati home against Indianapolis and at Cleveland, all W's for the Steelers first in the AFC North, according to Adam rank and the top seed in the AFC. I know that the the three of us here are three huge Steeler fans. I would classify myself as a diehard Steeler fan, but I don't think this is anything more than a pipe dream as a Steeler fan. You know, this is the absolute best case scenario for the Steelers to go 13 and 3. Uh, I think honestly it's just Adam Rank making a shock comment, you know, like a lot of the other um, national analysts that are saying the Steelers will do worse with Big Ben than they were with the mix of Duck Hodges and Mason Rudolph. At this point, 
you know, I, I expect the Steelers to go anywhere between nine and seven and eleven and five. You know, that, that's my my hope and expectation for the season. Uh, that's what I thought when the schedule came out. That's probably what I'm going to think throughout. Um, I don't know what you guys make of this. It's nice to see that there's somebody on the Steelers' side, since a lot of the national media guys have pretty much jumped against the Steelers, even with Ben Roethlisberger coming back. But I, I just think it's it's Adam Rank trying to make some headlines here. Yeah, I agree with you, Donnie. It's, you know, anybody to get their name out there in either a positive or a shocking or a negative way, um, you can do it, especially in a time where they're – aren't really a whole lot of things to talk about on the sports front. This is something for us to talk about. Um, they, uh, and I forget who said it, and I think it was Max Kellerman on first take the other day, and I agreed with him for once. I, I think, you know, the benchmark of being a an elite NFL team uh, and being a legitimate on the short list contending-wise for the Super Bowl uh, is 12 wins. I think if you're a team that can go 12-4 and four at least, you're in the upper echelon uh, of the NFL. Um, are the Steelers in that category? I think they can be, um, but there are a lot of question marks. And the, the biggest one is, is Ben Roethlisberger going to be the same quarterback he was, um, you know, in years past. He's come out and said that he is pain-free for the first time in a really long time. That's positive news. Um, does it mean that the Steelers are going to sweep Baltimore? Probably not. Baltimore is still a very, very good football team. They have a great defense, an MVP quarterback coming back with a potent offense, a great offensive line. And from what I've read recently, uh, they're one of the favorites or the early favorites uh, to land Jamal Adams if he's on his way out of New York, which would suck from a Steelers perspective and being a Steelers fan, but would make them a hell of a lot better of a football team. And I still think even without Jamal Adams right now, uh, they are the best team in the AFC North. I think Pittsburgh's second best, but I think the Steelers, or I think the Ravens, rather, are, are still a better team. Do I think the Steelers can win against the Ravens? Yeah, sure. I mean, you look back at 2019 and see who Lamar Jackson didn't perform as well against, and it was the, the Pittsburgh Steelers. They picked him off three times. They held his QBR, I think, below 50. Uh, they contained him. The defense is going to be good. I think the defense is going to be a hell of a lot better in 2022 because you look back at it, uh, when we, when the Steelers rather traded for uh, Minka Fitzpatrick, they didn't really ask him to do a whole lot. They really asked him to play safety. They didn't know how well he'd fit early on uh, coming into a season almost halfway through. He's played an entire or played a, at least enough in a Pittsburgh Steelers system to be now one of the catalysts of that defense. I think it's him and TJ Watt. And Minka Fitzpatrick is athletic and can do a whole lot. You can line him up at slot corner. You can line him up at corner. You can play him at safety. And you could probably line him up in some, you know, nickel uh, situations as well. Um, I think he's going to be more impactful because of that. And I think that that will help the Steelers be better defensively. I don't think it'll be enough for them to beat Baltimore twice. Um, if you're going to predict the Steelers to go 13-3, and I'd probably subtract that loss at home against Cleveland and replace it with a loss against Baltimore, and there are probably a game or two uh, else on that schedule um, th that I would uh, throw in there for an L as well. But I think, again, yeah, Donnie, I think anywhere from 9-7 and seven and, um, what'd you say, 11-5? and five? Yeah, between 9-7 and five is normally what I expect. 
I, I think a ceiling for them could be 12 and four, but 13 and three. Um, and, and like I said, that benchmark of 12 wins, I think is a ceiling for them, but you, you start throwing 13 wins around, uh, that's, that's, uh, upper, upper echelon in the NFL. And I don't know right now, and we're going to have to wait and see with Ben Roethlisberger, obviously, but I don't know that, uh, that's going to be the case. Um, for the Pittsburgh Steelers this year. We'll see. I mean, <laughs> I'd love it, but we'll see. I would be more shocked if the Steelers went 13-3 and three than if they went 8-8. Eight and eight. Um, and I think that the, the floor for this team is 9-7. and seven. I said it a couple of weeks ago, probably about a month ago on the podcast, now when we made our predictions. 9-7 uh, and seven was the floor, and I think 12-4 and four is the absolute ceiling for this team. First of all, I don't think there's any way that they're sweeping the Ravens. Uh, I think the loss comes on the road. I think they win at home on Thanksgiving. I, I said when we did the predictions, I thought they'd lose to the Cowboys, and I thought they would lose on at Buffalo. Uh, and I had that Cleveland game at home is is a is not an eye opener, but is one that I thought that maybe would be overlooked by a lot of fans and and maybe the team as well with Philadelphia coming in on Week Five going to Baltimore in week seven. That's kind of a sandwiched trap game in a sense uh, with a Cleveland team that hasn't won here at Heinz Field and in Pittsburgh since the early 2000s. Dominance by the Steelers over that franchise at home and even on the road with Ben Roethlisberger. Uh, I I do think that that one is one that we should point to is maybe a loss, but I I just don't see it. I, I think 13 and three is a big stretch and, and anybody to Donnie's point, anybody in the national media saying that this team is going to be worse with a, a, a don't care if he's a 39 year old at this point, Ben Roethlisberger is a better quarterback than Devlin Hodges will ever be. And he's 39 years old and hasn't thrown an NFL worthy pass in over a year. Um, by the time he, it's all said and done, I, I don't think that this team can be worse than they were last year with the defense that is returning and with a, a potentially first ballot Hall of Fame quarterback returning uh, can't be worse than Devlin Hodges or Mason Rudolph was last year at points. And, and there's just no, no way that they are eight and eight or worse. I think nine wins would be a shock just because I don't think that this team is that bad. I think it's a double digit win team, 10, 11, maybe 12 if they get, a couple bounces and, and things go their way, but I I would think ten or eleven is is the more realistic expectation and and kind of uh, something that they can get to. Yeah, I I think we would all be through the roof if the Steelers actually did go thirteen and three and they swept the Ravens. Um, you know I I don't want to harp on it too much because we've pretty much talked about every point here, but. I, I just don't see it happening, even in, in the best of circumstances. Uh, if they sweep Baltimore, I guess Baltimore by itself, I'd be ecstatic about that. Even if the Steelers were 10-6, and six, if they sweep the Ravens, I'd be very excited about that. However, they couldn't end up meeting uh, later on down the road. But, guys, uh, another good one with, with you two. Uh, pretty exciting one coming up. Uh, on the Come On Network, which, by the way, Come On Network available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, a special thank you to Anchor, a great resource for anyone looking to start podcasting. Anchor will do everything for free. Anchor will post your podcast onto various platforms, track your listeners, and even match you 
with sponsors. Also, follow us on Twitter at ComeOnNetPod. Coming up next time on the Come On Network, probably around the 4th of July, we will have uh, Barstool Sports and Twitter sensation Joey Molinaro joining us. Uh, you know, Joey, an intern with Pat McAfee, along with a good friend of ours, Drew Brown. Drew will be on as well with us when we talk to Joey, uh, a huge Steeler fan. We'll get to talk to him about all of that. So a lot of fun coming next time on the Come On Network. Also, uh, before we go, another thank you to Travis Swaggerty, the Pirates' first-round pick in 2018.